Let me pray, get us started. Father, um, we ask that you set a fire in our souls. We know that um, your word says that you set eternity in our hearts, God, and that we are all here for a reason, and we're looking for something, Lord. Um, and so I pray today that we, we find you in a new way. I pray today that um, we grow closer to you, that we, we, we develop a desire for you, God. Um, you're so much bigger than all the stuff that takes us underwater. Um, so, Lord, uh, come in this room. We pray that you are, are just palpable in here today. Um, be in the words that I'm going to speak. Actually, you know what? Make them your words, not my words. Um, and we thank you for the opportunity to get and sit with um, Bibles open in our laps in this place. We thank you ultimately for your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, before we start, I have to make a very serious announcement. Apparently, it's been brought to my attention that we have an epidemic in this Bible study, and I just feel like I need to warn you guys about it, and it's not the flu, so don't freak out and don't like run out of the room. You know, something came up in our Facebook group, then I feel like it's important that we talk about it. Need to, we need to get out in the open. Um, there's been a lot of people that have been getting puppies, right? <laughs> like, I just want to warn y'all, like, I, the flu may be better than the puppy. Amen? Where's Dawn? Dawn's like, yes, I would rather have the flu than the puppy. Um, no, it was kind of funny. We started talking about it on our Facebook group. If you're, not, if you're on Facebook, come join that group because we have very seriously deep theological discussions in that group that you need to be a part of, like puppies. Um, but anyway, I felt like I needed to throw that out there. And I think everyone who has a puppy would appreciate your, your prayer also for those of us that um, do. So could you pray for us? All right, that's enough of that. Um, let's open your Bibles to John 5 today. John 5 and 6 is what we're going to talk about. Um, you know, we, we've talked every week. If you're new this week, I'm so pumped that you're here. I'm so excited that you're here. Um, if you're rejoining us after a few weeks or if you've been here every week, let's just remember this. So we've all slept a few nights and it's always good to remember that John is so cool that he actually tells us the purpose of this book in chapter 20. Do you remember that? We, I've kind of thrown it at you a couple different times. We haven't even gone there yet, but John chapter 20, verses 31 and 32, he tells us that the purpose of this book is so that we can understand who Jesus was when he walked on this earth and that we can know him and believe him and have eternal life because of him. And so with that purpose in mind, we are launching into this portion of his ministry where um, it's getting real ugly. It's getting real controversial, and there's a lot of people that want to see him go down. And so it's starting to get aggressive. It's starting to get intense, which means it's starting to get intense for us because we're going to have to come face-to-face with him as well, aren't we, and figure out what we believe about him. So that's what five and six are going to take us to that place. Last week, we talked about um, Jesus' arrival, didn't we? We talked about the announcement. Who was the guy that was the voice? What was his, his nickname? JTB, that's right. That's, that's his rapper name, JTB, John the Baptist. He came on the scene and he had a purpose. He knew who he was and he knew who he was not. He was not the Savior, even though a lot of people tried to pin it on him. But he knew who he was. He was coming to share about the Savior that came. And then we, we talked about a bunch of encounters and experiences that we went through with Jesus, didn't we? And those were really cool because we learned some things about him and about how he operated and how, oh, you know, he performs his first couple miracles to like, the servants. Wasn't that cool? 
It wasn't like he said, hey, check, check, mic check, mic check. All right, lights on. You know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm Jesus ready. You know, light show, circus time. He just did what he had to do to the people that needed to understand. Well, this week, things change a little bit. This week, we have um, the first two miracles that we're going to talk about are, are pivotal in the life and the ministry of Jesus. We have now a miracle that are going to be for the masses. We have one miracle that he's going to perform on the Sabbath. Ooh, right? Like, we're all sitting here going, what? What does that even mean? Because for us, it's just Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby are closed. Amen? That's, like, serious. But for them in this time... That was the first step that took him to the cross, is that he was performing miracles on the Sabbath, and we'll learn more about that in a minute. And then the next miracle that we're going to talk about in depth is that feeding of the 5,000 or so. And what we understand about that is it was so significant that it's the only miracle that's recorded four times in the four Gospels. Remember, we, we know this about the Bible, that every word of it matters, but when there's things that are repeated, it's like, hey, listen up, people. Four times. We need to understand what significance it has. So today, that's what we're going to do. We are going to talk about Jesus curing, causing controversies, and making claims in, verse, in chapter 5. And then we're going to go into talking about how he ministered to the multitudes in chapter 6. And then lastly, we're going to deal with that question, that elephant in the room that you guys talked about a little bit in your homework. Who is Jesus to me? That's how we're going to close today. So the official account of persecution has begun. Chapter 5, it's beginning. Jesus is a problem. He's causing trouble. People don't like it. The opposition has been smoldering under the surface, but now we're starting to see it rise up and we're seeing it take a voice um, with the Jewish leaders. And so we'll, we'll see that a lot here in this very first miracle. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to chapter 5. Here's how this is going to go. It's a lot of text, and so I'm going to read some of it, and some of it I'm just going to kind of talk us through because you all, I can see that you all did all of your homework, every word of it, unless you have a puppy and then you get a pass, and it's okay if you didn't do it. No. If you didn't get to your homework, hopefully you'll be able to follow along, and, and hopefully, I want to tell you one thing too. I know we say this, but I want you to understand that we really mean this. If there's a week that you can't get to it, just come. We've all been there. Okay, so we want you here. We want you here. God has things that he wants you to know about who he is. And even if you don't have some words written on a page, come anyway. Another thing that I always try to do, if I'm getting behind and I can't get my homework done, I at least go to that page and kind of read, maybe read the chapter. So I kind of have a little bit of a bearing when I show up in small group. That helps too. Um, But we love you and we want you here. Okay, enough of that. All right, so chapter 5. I'm going to read a little bit of that, and we're going to pause and kind of talk through it. Remember, this is where he's curing the guy that was laying around for 38 years at the pools of Bethesda. Um, 38 years. I mean, I'm only 28, so I don't know how that feels, but it seems like that's a really long time. I love how much y'all laugh when I say that. It's a little insulting, honestly. Okay, chapter 5, verse 1. Follow along with me. After this... There was a feast of the Jews, and the Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, let me tell you one thing. Every time you see like a chapter number or a heading, just know this. When you're reading this, this was not included in the original transcripts. This is something that was added years later so that we could have like chunks of information and kind of be able to read it in pieces. And so when he says after this, I mean, he's just talking straight from what just happened. After this. He goes up to a feast of the Jews, and and we don't know. Usually um, we get a little more description, but we don't know which feast it was. We do know this. If it was a feast, it means there were a lot of people there. The parking lots were full, like Easter Sunday, right? 
Lots and lots of folks were there. And there he was in Jerusalem. Verse 2 goes like this. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool. In Aramaic it's called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. We're going to stop right there. We know it's a feast. We know there's tons of people. We know that, um, that this pools of Bethesda, this is what's cool. In about 2005, it was excavated, and, and you can actually go visit that if you've been to Jerusalem. It's in the Muslim quarter of old Jerusalem, but it's there, and it's real. And at the time, there was this belief that because the waters were kind of a reddish color because of all the minerals in the soil and everything, and then the waters would kind of get stirred up, that as soon as the waters got stirred up, whoever was in there first is going to get healed. There was a lot of pagan beliefs going on and a lot of traditions and and superstitions and things that were being built up through the years. But man, you got a bunch of desperate people, right? And they're going to do anything they can. And so then we find this guy, he's been there 38 years. You know, my first thought was, was he hopeless or was he hopeful? We don't know. We don't know much about him. In fact, we don't even know. We do know this. We know he didn't know who Jesus was, but we don't know if he ever did understand. We don't know if he ever came to a saving faith in Jesus. But we do know for 38 years, he's laying by the pool, desperate. Well, 38 years is a long time, so I hear. And so you, you, you realize that that must mean the gravity of his, of his illness. It must have been a debilitating situation, right? So just kind of put yourself in the story for a minute. I mean, this guy's been there for 38 years, just desperate. And so when Jesus shows up and walks in the dark, dirty parts of this place that probably most healthy people do not go, right? I'm guessing, when Jesus shows up and walks around in there, the, the miracle that he's going to perform is going to have huge impact, isn't it? Because even if people kind of gave up on 38-year guy laying there, they certainly know that he exists, if, if at least they step over him on their way to work every day for 38 years. So the gravity of this illness is going to create a genuineness in this healing, and it's going to spread. We go on in verses 6 through 9, and it goes like this. He says, um, John says, that when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time, and he said to him, the dumbest question ever, right? I'm sorry, that wasn't, uh, Jesus never asked dumb questions. But it felt weird. Did it feel weird? You're like, duh, Jesus, totally. I mean, come on. He says, what did he say? Do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? What do you think that guy was thinking? Do you want to be healed? Verse 7, he says, Uh, John says, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going in, another comes in front of me. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, I love this, get up, take your bed and walk. And what happened? At once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. A couple of things to notice there. We know that this guy has persistence. We know that he's been there a long time. But this is what's crazy is Jesus asks him what seems like an obvious question. But it can almost seem like a bait or like a trick. Like, Jesus, why would you ask that question? But more interesting is the way he answers it. Did he answer it? He didn't answer it with a yes or no, did he? He answered it with, well, hey, here's the thing. I've been here a long time. Nobody helps me into the water. Somebody always cuts in line. I'm never going to get healed. I've got all these excuses. On and on and on and on. And Jesus says, enough. Get up. Take your mat. You're healed. 
The thing that's so cool about this is that you see that Jesus asks the question, the sick man, sick man answers the question, but then Jesus heals him without any requirement. That's who Jesus is. He didn't say, hey, I need you to believe X, Y, and Z. I need you to go and do the baptism thing. We got to do some, there's some stuff we got to do, some work we got to clean up, and then you're healed, did he? He, he didn't. He healed without requirements. Then he says, get up, get up. I thought about Genesis 1-3 and, um, or, you know, really all of the, the creation account, honestly. Um, that's the same way God spoke creation into being. You realize that? He said, God said this, let there be light and there was light. Jesus said, get up. And the guy got up. Jesus' spoken word healed and restored this man. I thought, about, I thought about this. I thought about, you know, he heals without requirements, okay? But you know what else we see about Jesus here is that sometimes he heals, but then we got to do our part, don't we? He heals, and then he says, get up. And I thought, man, how many times does he heal us, and we don't get up? What about me? What about like, do I work and pray and say, God, I want this circumstance to work out. I want to have a perfect marriage. I want my finances stable. I want reconciled relationships and healthy friendships. God, I need this and I need this and I want this and I want this and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and he is not doing what I said. And maybe, maybe He's healing me in the midst of all my ailments, and he's waiting for me to get up. Maybe, just maybe, it's his timing and not my timing. Maybe the things that I'm praying for are maybe not the way he's going to fix the situation. Maybe it's time to just get my mat and get up and follow him. I don't know. Like that, That's what I thought about. I thought about all those things that I often say, ah, oh, this is just the way God made me. It's just the way I am. I'm a people pleaser. That's just the way God made me. And he's sitting there going, sister, I have healed you of that so many times and you will not get up and you will not quit. And you go right back to the same cycle. You go right back to your same spot, laying on the ground next to the pool. I don't know, maybe it's just me. Well, the other thing that stuck out to me was this, that, that maybe when Jesus was walking through the despair of that pool, you know, it kind of brought me back to that whole Samaria thing we talked about. Like, why is he going there? We know that Jesus can heal and do wonders just through his voice, right? So why does he physically have to be there? Why did he physically choose to go there? And, and I thought maybe Jesus wants to teach us that there is no place that's too dark for his glory, there's no place that he won't go to find you. You laying by a pool, he's going to show up. He heals without requirements. He, he heals and sometimes we don't get up. And he wants us to understand that no place is too dark for him. Wow. So then he goes on, so he does this curing. Then he goes on and causes lots of controversy because that's who Jesus is. Remember, he's the same Jesus that turned over the tables in the temple. Remember, my favorite Jesus. Love that about him. We go on to read in verses 10 through 16, he says this. We start learning that, uh, I'm just going to read verse 10 so you get a gist of where we are. So the Jews said to the man, okay, so he'd just been healed, and it was on what day? 
And Chick-fil-A is closed, right? Right. So they know that it's the Sabbath. And so he says, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Guys, 38 years. And that's what the Jewish leaders say to the guy. It's all about rules and regulations. And it's not about the guy. You know, if you go back to Exodus 20, again, some light reading. Jot that down if you want to go do some reading later. Exodus 20, verse 8 is where this is coming from. It says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That is actually what God intended. You know, all the way back into Genesis, we know that he wants this this beautiful um, Sabbath to be a rest. It was created for that. But they took God's gift of Sabbath and then they transformed it into this prison of like regulations and restrictions. You see, Um, And that's what Jesus had showed up, and he's going to turn the tables, if you will, again. This is what's crazy. So the Jews, they took that uh, that thing in Exodus 20 that says, um, keep the Sabbath day holy. And you know what they did? They did what we should not do. They added stuff to God's word. They took it, and they went and added hundreds and hundreds of rules to the Old Testament law. And what's cool about this is, like, okay, let's remember who Jesus is. Jesus is God in the flesh. Could Jesus, being God in the flesh, have done all this stuff a day earlier? Yeah. Could he have done it a day later and just just backed away from the whole Sabbath thing altogether? Yeah. But he intentionally chose to make this happen on the Sabbath. So it means something. You know what's cool about Jesus is um, some of the stuff that John doesn't cover. Remember, the book of John is 90% um, content that we see nowhere else in the Bible or in the Gospels, okay? So what's really, really cool is in Luke 4, 31, we know this about the timing of Jesus and all his miracles. He has already healed this demonic guy on the Sabbath. He's already done it once. And then soon, you know what he's about to do? He's about to, in Matthew 12, he's about to um, defend the disciples for picking up grain on the Sabbath. You know what he's going to do again? He's going to do it again in Matthew 12. He's going to heal a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. You think he's trying to make a point? I think he's trying to make a point. I relate to this, and here's why. Um, When my kids were younger, I had this, like, my mom and my sister are here. They know. I have this weird obsession about, like, I like control. I like things cleaned my way. I like everything to be in its place. And it's like God up there laughing at me, right? Because I have kids. So forget it. Well, I had, I have this one kid, my boy kid, and, um, I needed him to clean his room. And I would say, I need your room cleaned. It's not that hard. You're like six. I mean, you only have a couple of things, like just pick them up off the floor or hide them. So I don't see him. Right. And I was getting all twisted about it. And a wise, wise woman who would counsel me often during my early parenting years. In fact, I need to call her. These late parenting years are not easy either. But um, she would say to me this. She'd say, Chris, there's not just one way to clean a room. And I'm like, oh, but it's my way. (laughs) But that's what this feels like. It felt like I, she was basically trying to tell me, you are spending way more time worrying about, um, the messy room and the mess and how it's being cleaned, then you are spending time worrying about the one who lives in the messy room. And that's what these Jews were doing. Like they had taken these rules and this had become their God. And their God is standing in front of them and they don't even see it. So they chastised this guy because he was healed on the Sabbath. Um, 
And then they go on in verse 17 and 18, and this is what gets, this gets them really hot under the collar. Are you ready for this? Talk about controversy. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. In verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that's pretty bad news, but... He was even calling God his own father, making him equal with God. The thing is, verse 17, he used the words, my father. And in traditional Jewish um, um, reverence to God, you said, our father. But Jesus purposefully used that language to make it clear, I am the son. And they didn't like it. And he goes on in verse 18, and he's making himself equal with God. So he's causing lots of controversy. So he cures, he causes controversy, and then we move down into these next verses, and he makes some claims that get him in all sorts of trouble. He says this in verses 19 through 23, he claims to be equal to God. You remember in your homework, um, we talked a little bit about that C.S. Lewis quote, and uh, one of our sweet small group leaders in tears shares with us that that was, that was the tipping point for her husband when he finally had to come face to face with, what do I believe about who Jesus Christ is? Is that quote, is he a liar? Because, because here's the thing, in this, in this chapter alone, if you believe that Jesus is only a good teacher, then you also believe that he is a liar. Because in very clear words, he's saying to these people, I am the son, I am the way. And he's saying that to us too. So do you think he's a liar? Do you think he's a crazy man? Because if he's a crazy man, he's also not a good teacher. I mean, I know some teachers in here are pretty great and they're a little crazy. But liar, lunatic, or Lord, you got to come face to face with him and figure it out. And you'll see in chapter 6, we'll see a lot of people right here. This is when they said, I'm out. This is crazy. I'm full of bread. I'm good. I'm out. We got to figure out if we believe he is equal to God. So in those verses, that's what he claims. In verses 24 through 29, he claims this. He claims that he has the authority to raise the dead. And in that, in that little five-verse uh, five section, he talks really about four different resurrections. And I'm not going to go too deep here, but I am going to list them for you. Because I know that some of us had a little, we stumbled a little bit over some of that language. But I want you to know that remembering the context of who he's speaking to and when he's speaking, that a lot of this is less for us and more for those who are listening at the time, that they need to hear this because all these years they've heard this Old Testament scripture speaking of what is coming. And so he is confirming those things for them. Does that make sense? So sometimes when you read something, you're like, I don't get that. I don't understand what I have, what that means to fly around Texas. Maybe it was, it was for them more than you more than me? I'm not sure, but let me share with you what it was. There was four different resurrections he's talking about here. The first, he's speaking of lost sinners. He's speaking of of what we know now as as non-believers, people that choose to say, ah, Jesus is super cool and he's good for you. Good for you, right? But rather than looking at him and saying, I'm a sinner and, and I don't know how to get this right, And the only way I can do it is to approach God. And the only way I can approach God is through the son who God sent to the earth to live and hang out with us and die the death we should have died. So that's the first resurrection he's talking about. He's talking about those people that accept Jesus as their savior are going to be resurrected. 
when, when they die. We talk about eternal life and heaven and all that. That's what he's talking about there. That's the first. The second is he's speaking of the resurrection of himself. Remember, I'm not spoiling anything, I hope. Maybe I am, but that's okay. It's coming. You can just deal with it. Um, we're going to learn about how Jesus dies, but then how he is also resurrected. And so he's speaking of his own resurrection. The third is that he's speaking of the future resurrection of believers who had died before. Now, we're not going to go too deep into that, but he's making reference to that. Those who have died before that were believers and how they will also go and, and enjoy eternal life in heaven with God the Father. And then the, the fourth is this, that he's speaking of um, just before the Son of Man returns, which is, is coming later. It's like in the right side of the book. In the Revelation part, where John, John actually authors that as well, that's what he's speaking of there, is what's going to happen then is when people don't believe, but then the sun returns, and then they're like, whoa, man, okay got, okay, got it. And that's what he was speaking about there. So four different resurrections. So he says, I'm, I'm equal to God. I have authority to raise the dead. And then the third claim he makes is in verse 30 through 47, and he makes this claim, that there are valid witnesses that support the fact that he is God in the flesh. There are witnesses. And you talked, you, you did a little bit about that in your homework, I think. But remember, last week we spoke about how in this um, period of time, well, really now too, essentially, like when you go to court, like I can't just walk in there and say, hey, like I got my pocket full of gummy bears and I walk in, I'm like, hey, I did not steal those gummy bears. I promise. And then there's five other people that like, oh, you so did. You stuffed them in your pocket and walked out of the store. Those witnesses will convict me. Those witnesses will convince a judge and jury what the truth is. They need witnesses to prove that I steal gummy bears. You're welcome. That was real deep. Um, so he's talking here about these valid witnesses that support the fact that he is the son of God. The first we talked about last week, the voice, JTB, right? John the Baptist witnessed the fact that Jesus was the deity, was son of God. The next he speaks of were his own miracles. The things that a lot of these people were following him around to see him do, all these, you know, magical, amazing things that all of a sudden somebody would hear something and they'd be like, come on, let's go see what is next. Those were also witnesses to the fact that he was the son of God, only the son of God. And then um, God's own word, the Old Testament scriptures. We've, we've dabbled a little bit in that, but there's a lot of things in the scripture that point toward the coming king, the coming salvation for the people of God. And so little by little, these things are being revealed like an onion peeling back layers and people are starting to see, hey, remember what it said in Isaiah? Like this is happening. So those also are a witness. And then finally, God the Father himself. God the Father himself. Remember when, uh, when John the Baptist had the, had the privilege of baptizing Jesus, we heard a voice from heaven, God's own voice. says, this is my son. Their witnesses were showing these people. There's so many things that are showing these people who Jesus is, just what John wants us to understand today, right? Well, the key is this. When, when you hear about the miracles and such, a lot of the doubters would be sitting there going, yeah, but, you know, the other guys that were awesome did miracles. Like Moses and Elijah and later on, Paul, he'll, he'll do, perform miracles and everything. But here's the difference, okay? When you hear people say to you, well, Jesus is just a guy. He's just one of those guys. Here's the difference. None of those other guys claim to be the son of God. Never once. Only this guy, only Jesus. We got, we got to know that. You got to know that. 
these Jewish people sought to know the word of God. They sought to, to understand and have all these rules and regulations and really abide by it, right? But they were missing the God of the word standing right in front of their faces. Are we that way? I mean, I was reading through um, some books and I'm like, no, we're not that way. We are Rock Point Church Women's Bible Study. Yeah, guys, um, do we spend sometimes more time studying and understanding and knowing and using our, our brains and we miss the word who became flesh and he dwelt among us? I think. Do we spend more time um, letting religious tradition or requirements or rules or pressures or service or things that are real good do we let those things um, blind us to the truth of maybe who Jesus is because we're too busy doing the other things? I don't know if that's you. It is me sometimes. I have to keep myself in check that I don't let um, nerding out on history of John chapter 5 overcome the fact that um, it's about the Son of God who came to this earth to die for my sins. We don't want to be those same people, do we? So we see how he cured and how he caused controversy and how he made claims. And now you kind of understand why we're marching toward the cross, right? It's crazy what's happening in this portion of scripture. We, we, we can't even fully grasp it, but at least we're getting a little bit of a picture of it. And so now we march into chapter 6. And remember, that's where we're going to feed the multitudes, feeding the multitudes. A couple things to note as we move into this fourth miracle in the book of John is remember, um, John doesn't record everything that's recorded in, in the ministry of Jesus. He records some different stuff. He chooses to, to give us information that he feels like we either need to understand Jesus better or that maybe fill in some holes, okay? And so as we approach this um, miracle, I want you to know the timeline is, is this. There are a lot of things that have happened between chapter 5 and chapter 6, okay? So between chapter 5 and chapter 6, in uh, Matthew 5 through 7, he's preached the Sermon on the Mount. Anyone ever heard of that? It's a thing. You should look it up. Um, but John doesn't talk about it. But we know it has happened, okay? So that's already happened, and that was big. Also, we know in Matthew 13, he, he teaches about the parables of the kingdom, and that has already happened, okay? So when you walk into this section, understand that there are things that have already occurred. And as we learned when we read all of the four different, um, the four different accounts, did you look at, I think it was Mark, um, and I should have made you read it. I should have gently suggested that you read a little ahead. But did you notice where um, we see more information about where the disciples had come from? Did you see that? Where did they come from? They had just come from burying John the Baptist. Their friend. They had to go bury their friend. And then they need to minister to other people. Have there been times... Um, maybe, maybe literally, but maybe figuratively where you've had to bury somebody that you love. And then the very next minute you're expected to feed the multitudes. I cannot imagine how that must've been for those guys. But Jesus knew the timeline of all of it. He knew what had happened. He knew how exhausted and worn out and maybe even, um, down and, and maybe even a little discouraged that they were walking into this and then he gives them this. 
that, that hit me, I think, this time reading through this, is that they had to be um, spent. Okay, so the thing we know is how many pe- what is the number that we saw when it said how many men were there? Do y'all remember? 5,000. It's probably heading in your Bible, so cheater, cheaters. Um, it says 5,000, but there's something I want you to understand if you haven't read this account before. You need to understand this. That is only counting men. And so um, all the smart people, like the historians and stuff, they, they estimate that this was as many as 10,000 people. Just wrap your brain around that for a minute. This is, we are not 10,000 people in this room. Look around. There's a lot of people here. And if we're hungry, we're hungry. But he's, he, the estimation is that there were 5,000 men, which makes it more like 10,000 because you have families with women and children. And so as you're thinking through this story, I want you to think that way. Think about 10,000 people. So what we find in this chapter 6 is we see that Jesus does a couple of different things related to this miracle. Jesus feeds, Jesus leaves, and then he teaches. Okay, you went there and you went deep, so I am not going to read it out loud, but I want you to um, go back, if you will, for a minute and think about when he was feeding the multitudes, excuse me. In John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, we get some of the details about that, don't we? Well, a couple points I wanted to, th- I wanted to get you thinking about was this. Um, Jesus knew what was coming, didn't he? He knew what was coming. Now, his, his disciples didn't know what was coming, and they really had to dip into trusting Jesus in this, did they not? Remember where they came from. Remember how they must have felt. And now imagine, as, as chapter 6 says, that um, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. Remember? All the stuff's happening, so now all of a sudden people are like, hey, let's just see what's next. Okay, so a large crowd is following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover feast was with, of the Jews was at hand, so lots and lots of people. And this is what I love, Jesus lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. He said to Philip, where are we going to buy the bread? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Here's the cool thing. Jesus knew what was coming. He saw what was coming on the horizon. And he didn't panic. And he didn't freak out like I would. And be like, okay, call Market Street. We got we to gotta cater this thing. We got to get crock pots on the table. We got to call Kathy and her team. You know, they know how to do this thing. He's chill, right? And he asked Philip, what do you think we're going to do? What are we going to do? And it was this learning opportunity for the disciples. He knew what was coming. So then we move into to what? Not only did he know what was coming, but he used what they had. He said, you know, they said, we don't have enough money. We can't feed all these people. What do we have? We've got what? Five loaves, two fishes. Fine, no problem. 10,000 people, we can do this, right? Do you think all the disciples were like, yes, Jesus, we so know that you can. I bet they are guys, guys. He's still Jesus. I get it. They're walking with him. But can you even imagine? I'm thinking right now, if I had five loaves of bread and two fishes and I'm looking at y'all, I'm like, I hope some of them are gluten free. (laughs) Because it would be hard, wouldn't it? He used what they had. When we give all that we have to him and let him do the rest, miracles happen. I think about this immediately when I'm reading this. I think about um, your small group leaders. I want you to know this about, about all of your, probably all of your small group leaders. I want you to know this, that when, when, 
when we pray about um, who is it, God, that you, that, that you are lifting up and would like to have them shepherd and lead and love on these women and th- these women, these names come up and we're like, oh, I was thinking of her too. And, you, and we kind of get in this room and we're talking and we're praying and, and then we call the Linda Beans and we say, hey, we want you to pray about and think about um, leading a small group. And you know what they say? You know what every one of them says? Oh, no, no, I can't do that. Every one of them. They said that. And you know what? That's when Becky and I went, that's her. If, if, if we call you, I'm just going to warn you. If you, we call you and you want us to not ask you to be a small group leader, say, all right, no problem. That is my lane. I can do this. Because the beauty is when God takes something that we think is just not, gonna, not even sustainable, that there is no way. Like I say it every time I walk up here, we laugh because backstage I always pray, God, I don't want to embarrass you today. <sighs> I do sometimes, but I cannot, I cannot do this. This is so not a thing I can do. I am not that smart and I don't have that much knowledge, but you know what I have? I've got Jesus behind me tearing the bread into pieces and saying, go, pass it out. When we think we can do it on our own, when we're real comfortable, usually we don't rely on Jesus, amen? When we're desperate and there is no way, it is impossible for this thing to work itself out. That's when we get to see Jesus in the miracle. I love that. I love that this was just absolutely impossible. Jesus knew what was coming. He used what they had. He acknowledged the source. You know, two different times we see mentioned that he gave thanks to the Lord. Verse 11 and verse 23. Remember, when we see things over and over, what are we supposed to do? Pay attention. Two times he gives thanks to his father for what his father provided and allowed for them to do to those multitudes. And then lastly, um, Jesus told them to use the leftovers. How many baskets? How many disciples? I don't believe in coincidences. You know, if you were in church this week, Ron was preaching um, and he was talking about bread. Remember that? And he was talking about the significance of bread. And at the time, I want you to understand this. I'm not going to go too far into this, but bread was more than just um, you know, a loaf of bread that you buy at the grocery store. Bread was absolutely the foundation of what they ate and how they ate and their sustenance. And a lot of times it was the meal. And a lot of times it was the utensil for the meal. Bread mattered. It's not just a coincidence that he happened to feed his people in the wilderness bread from heaven. There was significance, okay? So when we see all this Jesus saying, I'm the living bread, I'm the bread of life and everything, it isn't just because he was just, oh, we just saw bread. It was, there, is, there is a meaning here that is bigger than anything that we could have just thought up with our own little heads. Well, he goes on after we know that nothing's wasted. We take all the leftovers. No fish were left over, at least that we know of, right? Just the bread, interesting. We take the leftovers. We're not gonna waste them. And then Jesus does what? Goodbye, <laughs> He leaves. He retreats, doesn't he? In verse 15, it says this, if I can find it. In verse 15, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It's important to understand at this moment, after this miracle, which was very, very public, right? 10,000 people, 10,000 people telling people, this is, it's turning into crazy land. Okay, so all these people are now going, hey man, maybe he is the king. I mean, he just fed us. We are full. This is awesome. And so they're, they're getting all riled up and excited and they're going to try to push Jesus into this, into this box of who they think he should be. And he knows it. And so he retreats. 
And he knows it, and so he retreats. Not only does he retreat, he compels his disciples to get in a boat because the crowd is aroused and they're moving to make him the king. Here's what's cool. You know, Jesus, we never see him impressed by large crowds, do we? We never do. Um, At the time, in in those times, there was this term that was used in the Roman Empire, and it was called um, the way to satisfy people is with bread and circuses. Bread and circuses. We still do that today, don't we? You want to get some people thinking they're fulfilled, you feed them, make them feel good, and entertain them. Jesus was so not about bread and circuses. He knew the motives of man. And so in this next portion of scripture, he calls them on it. He basically says, you're chasing food and entertainment. You're following me, not because I am the bread of life. You're following me because you're hungry and you want more signs and wonders. And you want to be the guy who's posting it on Instagram first, don't you? He knows who they are. And and in a minute, we're going to see that, that more people walk away from Jesus as followers because of all this than any other time. So he's never impressed with, uh, with all the crowds. They get in a boat. They start rowing three miles. Who rowed three miles this morning? I did. What? Come on, guys. What we know about, um, what we know about the Sea of Galilee is it's 13 miles north-south, seven miles across. They rowed about three or four miles out, and then what happened? And then it got bumpy, didn't it? And they're out there, and they rowed, and they're tired. They get into the boat. They row across. The sea becomes rough and scary. And Jesus starts doing what? Doing Jesus stuff. He walks out on the water. And you know what? I want you to know. I want you to notice something. You can notice what he says, but I want you to notice what he does not say. You know what he does not say? He does not say there is nothing to be afraid of. Does he? He doesn't say that. He says, it is I. Don't be afraid. Wow, right? He didn't say there's nothing to be afraid of. There are so many things that we are going to be afraid of. That's why in this word we hear that over and over and over. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's because there are things to be afraid of. And so he walks out there. He says, it is I. Gets in the boat. Instantly, they're where they need to be. Get Jesus in your boat. You get where you need to be. I don't know. That sounds like a t-shirt, but it happened. The next portion of scripture, verses 22 through 71 goes something like this. The next day, people are losing their minds, right? Because the word has gotten out that all this stuff has happened. And so they want to go find Jesus and his compadres. And they can't find him. And so they're looking, they're looking, they're looking. Um, and, and then we, we are going to walk into this portion of scripture that, like I said before, he is going to lose more followers in this one sermon than he does in the entire part of his ministry. And I thought to myself, it's kind of the same with us. Like today, I, 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 you are, you are going to have to make some decisions today because you're going to come face to face with the bread of life. And he's going to say, this is who I am. Do you believe me or do you not believe me? He, he does these miracles to establish his deity, but that's not why he came. He didn't just come to do flashy light shows because that, that is never going to end, right? These people are always going to want more, more, more. Instead, in verse 30, he says, What signs then are you going to do? Or the people say, What signs then are you going to do that we may see and believe in you? They want bells and whistles and bread and circuses. And Jesus responds. And he responds in verse 34. He says this. 
In verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. He's talking about the bread of life that they'll never be hungry again. And in verse 35, this is huge. Underline it, put stars next to it. It's the first time out of three that he says who he is. It's the first I am statement. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He uses two verbs there, come and believe. Come and believe. I fed you. It's been a day, you're hungry again. Do you see what happens? You know, they talked about Moses and they referred back to the manna from heaven and, and all these different things that happened um, in Exodus. But God is basically giving us this shadow in the Old Testament, the left side of the Bible, of what's coming now. That was just, that was bread that, that temporary satis, temporarily satisfied circumstances and, and, and helped us um, uh, f- sustain life. But it was a shadow of what was coming and Jesus giving eternal life and never again being hungry for that. They didn't even know they were chasing it. And so we see that uh, it goes on in verse 60. They were confused. And in verse 66, the most heartbreaking part of the story, many turned away and didn't believe. Many turned away and didn't believe. Because you know what they said? I need you... I want you to fill my belly and I want you to satisfy my circumstances, God. I have this laundry list of things that I need to be happy and satisfied and joyful. And if I can have those things, we're good. They wanted those things. They wanted circumstances, changes, and belly full. And God wanted their hearts and their souls and their lives to be changed forever. And they were out. It's, it's, it's crazy. But then it's not because it happens every single day, right here. And I'm not just talking about if you don't know Jesus as your savior, I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about those of us who know Jesus and have said, yes, I accept the fact that I am sinful and I can't get this world right and I need you. And then I still go off and try to find bread and circuses instead of the eternal the eternal that comes only through the bread of life. I don't know. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you are with God. I will ask you this in closing. Who is Jesus to you? We asked the question in homework. It was funny when we talked about it in our small group time because it was kind of like, okay, this might be weird and uncomfortable. But you know what? Weird and uncomfortable is what we're all about. Glad you came. He cured. He caused controversy. He made claims. He ministered to multitudes. And he said who he was. So you either call him a liar or a crazy person or you see that he's Lord. And if you see that he's Lord, now is the time. Now is the time to say to him, I get it. I need you. In John 5 and in John 6, John shows us this, that Jesus is the life giver. He's the healer who requires nothing and gives everything. He's not just a rule breaker. He's the rule maker. And ultimately, he's the bread of life, and he is the only way to the Father, the only way to be fulfilled, the only way to not be hungry again. John 6, 40 says this, and I'm going to close with this. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone, pause, it doesn't say, this is the will of my Father, that the well the clean, the pretty, the stable, the organized, the confident Bible study veterans, the girls that are here have 100% church attendance. He doesn't say that, does he? He says everyone. 
For this is the will of my Father. Speaking on behalf of God, the God that created the universe, he says this, Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's what God wants. And that's what John wants us to understand about the person of Jesus Christ. We are not even halfway through this book, and it's getting crazy, isn't it? I'm excited to get to go there with you guys, and I'm thankful that you're here. Let me pray, and then y'all can go get your kiddos. Father, you loved us so much that you sent your son. You love us so much that you leave us this word to try to work through and figure out, and sometimes we don't understand. Sometimes it just doesn't make sense to us, but God, it makes sense to you, and that is all I need, Lord. Um, how can I love you better? How can I love others better? How can I have a better understanding of what it is you have planned for me on this earth? Show us these things, God. I pray that if there's somebody in this room today that hasn't dealt with who Jesus Christ is, maybe they just don't really understand. I get it, man. I've been there. We've all been there. Um, Lord, will you make things clear for her today? Because you brought her here for a reason. Um, There are no coincidences. Things don't just happen. You are of the God of every detail. We thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the child care workers who have patience when I run over. And we thank you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Go get them.